0: How do you shift your mindset from a mindset where you're afraid of admitting that you've done something wrong, or you are afraid of committing resources to an endeavour that could potentially fail, to a mindset that says, I have something to learn here.
1: This is The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox, Jutta Tobias Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind failing fabulously. What does it take to go beyond failure and turn it into a valuable asset to your organisation?
2: So the wonderful thing about failure is that you never really know until it's too late. For example, introducing this session. I could start it a couple of different ways, or you can just wing it, and I'm not going to know. Well, all three of us aren't going to know if this is the official version of the start of this session because we're just focused on doing the session and delivering and moving things forward. And that's one of the interesting things I think about failure, is that you don't know until it's too late. So what I'd like to kind of propose is that we start the conversation about people's relationship with failure. How do people see themselves in failure? Is it fear? Is it trepidation? Does does the risk of failure actually stop people from being as ambitious as they can be and breed conservatism? And Yuta, I'll, I'll kick it over to you because I think there's a lot of the, the human condition that sits in why people fail and why it's hard to fail fabulously,
0: mm, mm. the the framework that comes to my mind actually is not a psychology framework, but it's an ops management framework. Out of Harvard, Amy Edmondson talks about failure as something that we see on a continuum. From we either are on the at at one end of the spectrum, we are blaming somebody. <laughs> if we are not sociopaths, we tend to blame ourselves. If we Think the world is, is, you know, it's the other people's fault, we, we might blame other people. But on the other end of the spectrum, we might actually, she calls it praise, we might actually rejoice, we might actually be happy that we've learned something from the failure. So it's the way we see failure tends to be somewhere along the spectrum of blame versus praise or learning regretting failure or actually using it as an opportunity so I think and Matt, and we've been talking about you know opportunities and threats in difficulty and in, in trouble what do you think
3: so I think failure is all a state of mind um, I think failure um, only really happens if you when you stop so there's a great quote from Thomas Edison that says, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Mm. And I think for me, that really, you know, epitomizes what failure is. You know, you fail when you stop. If you look at, uh, there was a great uh, documentary by on Michael Jordan recently, mm-hmm. you know, one of the best basketball players of all time, you know, and he, and he came out and he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. Um, you know, you look at the stats about him winning and losing and he's failed a lot of times, but the point is, is that every time he fails, he gets back up, dusts himself off practices, makes himself better. And so that then brings me to one of my, my favorite quotes from the ancient Stoics and Marcus Aurelius, um, and the translation from, you know, to, from the, from the Latin to the English would say the impediment to action advances action what stands in the way becomes the way. And so for me, that really says that, you know, every failure teaches us something. And if we go into, uh, if we, if we, if we treat every action as an experiment, where rather than saying, we know that if I do this, I want why to happen. But if we go in, looking at it, saying if I do this, I hypothesize that this will happen. And it, you know, you, you find that that hypothesis isn't true. Well, then you found out that that's not what you know. That's not the way to go from A to B, and so a lot of this is really about how do you actually frame that challenge. Um, there's a lot of scenarios in industry where you know, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry, where you see ridiculous amounts of money being spent to bring new drugs to market. I mean, the, the, the estimates are somewhere around two billion dollars to bring a new drug to market these days. The the, the challenge that they have is that they're trying, to, they're trying to work with incredibly complex systems and influence them to create an end result. You go into a, uh, a clinical trial trying to get out the other end and have a successful result. That's the aim. You don't pay that money to you don't invest that money so that you can come out the other end and go, hey, we failed. But it's going to happen. And the key the case is, is can you learn from that failure? And even more so, can you bring that failure earlier into the process? So can you learn to fail faster and more cheaply and maybe even more often so that you get to those 10,000 experiments that aren't going to work more quickly and more cheaply so that you get to the one way that does faster and more efficiently? Mm. Um, Adam, I see you nodding as if you want to jump in there.
2: Yeah, I I always want to jump in. Um, It's a circumstance that when it comes to fast cycle failure particularly you know in innovation hubs and you know organizations that are really trying to move forward quite fast is really the secret to that at least what what i've seen is a reprioritization of the innovation steps for example like if i'm let's say with big pharma for a moment if i have seven steps to bring something from clinical trial mm-hmm. to market how can I take the highest highest risk step and bring that forward as far as I possibly can so I'm doing the highest risk activity as early as possible? Because then statistically, what I'm doing is that if it is going to fail, I'm failing as fast as I possibly can. Now, obviously, there is a systematic way in relation to innovate drugs and put things through clinical trials. But you know, market testing in relation to demand or, you know, understanding if it's going out to the medical industry, what is their appetite to, you know, engage with this drug instead of, you know, a next best alternative. They're the sort of things you can actually bring earlier stage to try to get that faster cycle, faster failure. So that's very much, you know, the quick rule, you know, fail fast, fail cheap, fail forward. And I think we're going to be saying this quite a bit in this session, but really understanding how we can live that, how we can actually bring it in from an organisational perspective and then on the other side of the ledger, what does it mean personally? Like, There's a lot of political risk that exists within communities, structures, organisations that if I'm the person who's gone for something ambitious and it's failed, does that mean you know I'm now at a career cul-de-sac, I can't move up, I'm not going to get the promotion, I'm not going to get the bonus... The culture of the organization will start to cast a dark shadow over, over my involvement in that organization because I was the guy who failed. Mm. And, and that's why the, I'm saying
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you either blame or you praise, you either learn or you quash the learning, right? And I think it's, it's, uh, sorry, I'm, in, I'm, you're, are you still in the middle? Yeah. Go, go, go. Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, you, you're both. Uh, i couldn't agree with you more when you're saying you know failure' is a state of mind it's it's in your mind it's how you see it it's how you frame it um and I would imagine that the most concretely useful um, you know actionable insight about this is how do you shift your mindset from a mindset where you're afraid of admitting that you've done something wrong or you are afraid of committing resources to an endeavor that could potentially fail to a mindset that says, I have something to learn here and learning is good. There is something of value in trying, in dipping our toes into something that we don't know, where there's uncertainty, where there's risk. And I really would like to talk about, you know, finding value in things that we traditionally in normal organizational cultures don't really find valuable, such as discussing problems early, such as talking about things that we find difficult, talk about possibilities that we haven't really chewed through properly. And those are things that we need to encourage in organizations to shift the mindset from a mindset of just talking about, you know, um, we like failure, we welcome failure, but when in reality, somebody does something that smells a bit like they're doing something that could get the company to, to lose money, that's where we need to say this is actually valuable as opposed to something that could cost us something.
2: A hundred percent. There definitely needs to be constraint and definition around mm-hmm. what failure looks like and needs to be mm-hmm. specific trigger points and these need mm-hmm. to be monitored and there needs to be a very clear understanding that if a trigger point is hit, irrespective of where it is in the process, sunk cost bias, who owns it and the political dynamic within the organisation, if the trigger hits, it's out. And if the project is killed, then there is a clear understanding if that trigger is hit, then we know where we can reallocate the resources to recoup some of the CapEx, OpEx, whatever, headcount, factories, machinery, to actually then bring that in, make sure that the learning from that experience is also internalised, and then, you know, fail forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But you touch on something really interesting, Yuta. I was having a conversation with, uh, with a very respected uh Leader in a large organization, a very large organization, and she was saying she was putting forward the hypothesis, not necessarily through the lens of of failure, but through the lens of just dealing with senior people, is that she was stress testing: Do you start treating adults like children, and then start treating children like adults? So we're talking <laughs> about you know both ends of you know young children and how you should interact with them. And senior executives, and how you should treat with them. To your point about how do we get, you know, leaders to get into this mindset. A lot of the things you were alluding to sound like things you would do with a young child: mm. explore, understand, curious, grow, learn. When I'm a CXO of of a large organization, I'm I'm doing a whole heap of other things. In a utopia, I'd like to be doing that. But how do we actually get the leaders to start? Really cracking open and thinking the way that they should.
0: It's so interesting that you mentioned small children development because Amy Edmondson's work uh, on you know learning from failure at at Harvard is you know absolutely you know celebrated work on getting operational performance to be reliably excellent in the face of uncertainty. And she she talks about, of course, you know the the ability to fail and to fail early and to celebrate failure is one of the key components of operational sustainable performance in in organizations that uh, that you found. And um, the reason why that's interesting, why it relates to child development is because it's effectively behaviorism, you know, reinforcing the consequence of a behavior makes it more likely in future. That's what behaviorism is. And if you institutionalize failure parties, and that's what uh, happens a lot in 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 the pharmaceutical industry or at least it has when amy edmondson did did most of her work in in pharmaceuticals having a celebration of when somebody has done something but it has failed creates the cultural shift around yes let's do that one again because the organization actually finds it rewarding and rewards us for having failed rather than um Saying, doing a debrief in an in in a, a grey boardroom where we're saying mm, that hasn't really worked very well. Let's see if we can learn something and commit a report to it. That's a very different flavor to how you treat a small child when a small child wants to learn how to walk. And if the small child like trips, you go great, you've tripped, but you that means you've stood on one leg, right? So there's there's a behaviorist element to child development, and there's a behaviorist element to shifting the culture in organizations to actually almost as a leader in an organization you need to put your money where your mouth is and say i'm going to invest in celebrating attempts as opposed to i'm going to invest in celebrating success that's the shift of almost you know what 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 do we publicly want to reinforce which behaviors do we want to reinforce and i think that's where the risk comes in for leaders to say which one is in the bandwidth of a failure where somebody has really had an innovative idea and just because of the circumstances, it didn't work out, as opposed to which one is a failure where people were negligent or they were not working hard enough or they didn't do their homework? And that's the thing that you as a leader have to put a boundary around. Where can you shift the barometer towards the data? very clear. The more you welcome failure, the more you get to a learning organization that performs reliably in the face of uncertainty. But what risk are you willing to accept and what trust do you end up having in your employees to try out stuff without being blamed and without being labeled as not being hardworking enough, not being smart enough?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a fascinating um, and brutally honest paper that was published or a series of papers that were published by AstraZeneca, one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Um, they had noticed that their productivity had fallen behind some of their competitors, um, bringing new drugs to market. And so they went off and they did a, shall we say, a, a root and branch analysis of the, all of their processes. And it, it, they actually... You know, they actually, even in these papers that were published in, you know, scientific literature, they they, they openly admit, you know, quite painfully that there had been a, um, a lack of scientific curiosity and truth seeking throughout the process. Mm-hmm. So there was a um, there was a real drive to progress drugs down through the process from preclinical trials all the way through to, you know, clinical trials and then uh, market launch. And what they realized was that they were incentivizing progression. So therefore you would maybe tailor, you'd maybe look at data in a way that would say, okay, if it was 50-50 as to whether, you know, those those edge cases where they, you know, they, they could go either way. They didn't necessarily spend more time investigating it. It kind of, they'd push it in the right direction because that's what they were incentivized to do. What they then did was they brought in a, um, you know, they brought in a, a huge project to try and reinvigorate things. And they've absolutely turned this around, they they created what they called a 5R framework, which was, you know, really says to look at what's the truth of this. So, you know, have they got the right commercial potential, first of all, So, it, are they going after a target that actually isn't going to be worthwhile bringing to market anyway? Are they going after the right patients? Do those targets have the right safety profile? Do when they then looking at the um when they when you're looking at the drugs themselves, do they have are they targeting the right tissues, and are they going for the right molecular targets? So do they inhibit the disease properly? And so what they were really looking to do was to understand what are all the ways that we can we can we can sort of prove whether this works or not. And it's and it's absolutely fascinating seeing that um, that shift. I mean, I think over time, they saw a huge, um, huge shift in both their productivity and also, and that was then also reflected in their share price. Um, so you saw, um, you know, they, they also saw things like measures of the, the number of scientific publications that they were publishing increased, you know, from, um, you know, dramatically. But they saw an increase in share price um of 85 percent over the course of you know this, this, this period just because and I'm sure there's other factors as well during you know shifts in stock markets as well. Um, but they also saw an increase in buy recommendations for the shop for the stock from an 18 percent into 2012 through to sixty two percent in 2016. Mm-hmm. So no matter when you take away the um, the underlying shifts, what you're seeing is an increased confidence in what they were saying and what they were doing because they were no longer looking at yes we've got the one this one to the next phase and they they they're, you know they're hoping against hope that they're going to progress they're actually looking at all the things that could go wrong and they're trying to make sure that they're looking at those much much earlier um, to me that brings to one of probably the most um, the most helpful things i've found in my life um, on a personal note um, and on on projects which is really sort of Doing something called negative visualization, where when you're going into anything difficult, it's trying to understand what is the worst that can happen here. Um, Rather than expecting the outcome that we want and thinking, well, this is just going to have a linear route and this is where we're going to end up. It's about actually saying, well, there's a whole host of possibilities. We maybe can't map all of them, but what's the worst that can happen? And let's plan for that. And then let's hope for the best. So we plan for the worst, we make sure that we've got the worst covered off and that we go, is that an acceptable risk to take? So if you're going to invest in a project and it's going to cost you X million pounds, can you afford to waste that? Can you can you afford to waste the time, the effort, the energy and the money for no gain or, you know, and is the upside benefit worth that risk? And then if you know what the worst things that can happen are, you can actually plan for them. So. You know I've been involved in projects where we've where I've instigated project pre um pre mortem so you essentially you walk into the room at the start of the project and you go guys the project's failed and you go right we can't we've done it it's dead so and you get everybody in the room to go so ha- tell me how it happened. How did we fail? And that was the way that we populated our risk registers, mm-hmm. Not by saying what's the obvious risks, what are the obvious things that happened oh, actually how are we going to fail and imagine that we failed and we're sitting here in a year's time or two years time or whatever it is and we have failed and what are the things that we've not accounted for um and what's really interesting is you then often see people that haven't been involved in that process Mm -hmm. thinking no that's not going to happen that could never happen Mm. because they've not bought into that they've not been involved in buying into that process but uh it's a really interesting um and, and very insightful thing to do. And I have to say that um, one time that we did this, we had a number of people that say, no, that's not gonna happen, that's not gonna happen. And every single one of the things that people said couldn't happen, did happen. And they were all the big black swans that you were likely to happen you know, to that project, which is really interesting.
0: And I think that's uh, Matt, that speaks to something, a really important underlying thing that leaders and organizations need to generate it's to um reframe what's allowable in the culture to be discussed adam you need to say it you need to say what you're hopefully going to say at every podcast what fred rogers said say it to us
2: (laughs) if it's mentionable it's manageable
0: and that's the thing that that matt was talking about right now right so by creating a premortem where we are projecting ourselves into the future and and like letting it rip, right? We're letting it rip what all the negative scenarios are. We're allowing ourselves to think something that has or maybe is not normally, normally, right, in the culture of success that we're so desperate to cling on to, not normally mentionable. And you're making it possible that people are imagining stuff that is normally bottled up in organizations. So we, we we need to almost let the genie out of the bottle that there are scenarios that are possible and let's befriend the thought. Let's make it possible for us to think about it. Yeah,
2: a hundred percent. It's this, there needs to be a very clear leadership need to outline the new openness to failure and, you know, that has to come from the top, frankly. And the most effective way I've seen organisations do this is leadership start to socialise their own personal examples of when they have failed and what that looks like. And then, you know, like many many people would argue that, you know, organisational culture is a reflection of the culture of the, of the individual at the top. Yeah. So he or she or they should mm-hmm. turn around and go, okay, well, in my career, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've learned. Here is the value. Here is the up shop. No one died, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And, and start to go, look, this is where it is because we, as an organization, you can put in the processes and the structures and here is how we innovate. And we have a tolerance for failure. And I'm always mindful when I hear things like that. Yeah. Yeah. They're just words. Like show me what your tolerance for failure looks like. Mm-hmm. Like, like, Due tolerance, and that's that's quite difficult for organizations to do.
0: And I would like to add on that, that it doesn't have to be as scary as burying your soul and saying, this is how I failed, or this is what I find difficult, or, you know, this is what I'm not sure about. If you're thinking about failure as, you know, something about in the past, or maybe something in the future, you don't just want to talk about what failures in the past Art might be valuable, but you also might want to talk about uh, you know prospective failure that um we might fail here, but there might be value in it and adam i'm saying this I want to almost reassure anybody who's listening who thinks, mm, that sounds like a painful experience. You said the word valuable, and I think what we almost can do is we can actually this could actually heaven forbid be fun because we're digging for gold in failure and i'm I'm tempted to bring Dolly Parton into this, if I'm allowed Please to. do. Dolly's Dolly always Parton, welcome here. My father's favourite singer. Don't ask me why, right? But Dolly Parton says, the way I see it, right, is that if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. That's what it is, yep. right? So, and that means we can hunt for gold in the rain. We can hunt for gold in difficulty. Mm-hmm. And there is gold. And this is the, the... The shift from a, a positivist binary perspective of the world to a world that, where two things can exist at the same time. One of the most famous behavioral um, therapies gurus, Stephen Hayes, um, acceptance and commitments therapy founder, said in your pain you find your values and in your values you find your pain. They are never separate. But it's valuable to do stuff that is difficult because that's what makes us human and if we almost cut ourselves off from talking about and from actually finding value in difficulty, we're we're shutting ourselves off from all the stuff that has got us to be bigger and better and faster and smarter. Anyway, so I would like to, in a a very long-winded way, I'm I'm taking a lot of time with this, forgive me, but I'm excited about what you've said, what leaders need to do. They need to maybe talk about personal failures, but maybe they can also just talk about um, where the value is in difficulty. And when we do this in therapy with individuals or in coaching or in, you know, whatever we say, executive education, we ask people to start thinking about um what difficult stories come up when we're at the edge of our comfort zone and we normally do this with post-it notes do you guys have post-it notes nearby
2: i do not, not but i have a good memory easily to hand
0: do you have a do you have a sheet of, sheet of paper
2: you yeah. have a sheet of paper
0: um how about we do this as a thought experiment where we're asking anybody who's, who's willing to think to think and, and for us to write. Um, what difficult self-stories come up routinely for me when I'm at the edge of my comfort zone? And, and that could be, you know, me putting the phone down from a difficult call with a client, or that could be me... <laughs> having just lost it with a loved family member, or that could be me having caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, uh, naked, you know, what difficult, what painful, shameful self stories come up routinely. They typically are stories such as, I'm not enough, or I'm too much of. I wonder if I'm going to put one on on a posted note. You know what stories come up? I'm too or I'm not enough. So that's the one side of the of the coin. Have you guys got something written down? I'm, I surely don't yep. want you to share them. But I do. Do you do you have Do you have stuff right that comes up? Is it also a a recursing story?
2: Yes, because ultimately, I think what we're going for here is understanding one of the underlying conditions of the human condition that affects how we see the world,
0: yeah, right, and ourselves in that world. Yeah, so there's 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 the stories are actually quite um, for most people are quite similar. I'm not good enough, not fast enough, not smart enough. Uh, too anxious too stupid kind of similar stories like that Mm -hmm. um if you were to look at what you've got there um what what things that's important is also coming out when you're looking at that what thing that is valuable to you is somewhere included in that statement can you put that on the back In my case, the thing that's on the back always starts with a care. I care about something. Is there something at the back that's valuable for you? Is it fairly easy to find something that's valuable? And so, but you can't separate them. This is why doing them on the same sheet of paper on both sides. You can't separate caring about doing something well, maybe, and fearing or maybe saying to ourselves we are not good enough or we're not fast enough or we're too much of one thing. Caring and failing cannot be separated because my post-it, I can't tear it in Mm. the middle through. I can carry it this way, but that means I'm actually not separating. I'm still not separating, wanting to achieve something big and risking failing it. And that's the kind of I think that's the, at the basis of moving towards legitimizing that it's completely normal to have failure in anything that's valuable in our, in our work.
2: Mm. And it is that motivation that it, it's, it's the motivation and the ambition of what sits on the other side of possibly not failing.
0: And I think that's hopeful. That's where, yeah. where I wanted to go, right? It's hopeful that we can shift our attention towards noticing the gold, the valuable element of impending failure in the pre-mortem that Matt's just run us through. There is value in it, and that should be motivating because we want the culture to be a culture that embraces failing and that gets us to fail fabulously. <laughs>
1: We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind.
3: there's there's an element here that of of acceptance that things are not in our control all we can do is influence our own behaviors our own responses we can that doesn't mean to say that we should abdicate responsibility
0: yeah
3: but we cannot control other people we certainly shouldn't try to control we can try to positively influence but we can't control the world around us we certainly can't control that a, a pesky virus is going to spread across the world and and kill half a million of was it half however many you know however many people it is at the moment I forget too, too the, many too many people um, you know cause chaos and mayhem destroy economies um we can't we can't control that not individually yeah. um, but we can accept that. That is out of our control and we can then look at well, what actually is in my control to influence and within all of that there becomes a so I can't control this this and this but I can control how I respond to those external stimuli I can keep myself my, yeah. my fa- myself safe safe I can try and keep my family safe and I can try and keep others safe um whether or not that's being you know by wearing a mask every time you're outdoors is another matter entirely yeah. um, but I think that there is the it's about understanding the it's often about how you respond to those external stimuli mm-hmm. rather than necessarily being fixed on saying, I'm going to get hit. Yeah, we can have targets. and,
0: yeah.
3: and as you said, is there value in failure? What is the value on the opposite side of failure? Absolutely. If, if there wasn't something valuable we'd be shooting for, we wouldn't even consider a failure. Yeah. And I think that there's that, that whole, that whole dynamic of, you know, aiming for something big, you know, yeah, I always like to sort of say, if you're going you know, to shoot for the stars and you fail, yeah, maybe you might hit the moon. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I really love what you're saying about, um, you know, focusing on, um, you know, shooting for the moon, like uh, behavior, like what is under our control? I think the key word that, I'm, that I would like to riff off right now is almost parsing out what we can control and what we can't control. We actually can't control what we think, and if we had learned ways to suppress thoughts or emotions or to you know validly distract ourselves or numb ourselves from feeling or fearing, um, we'd be billionaires because it doesn't work. right? We cannot just like stop thinking about a pink elephant when when I'm instructed to think about a pink elephant. But what is under my control is um, which action I engage in, and it's really useful. To know why or what's valuable to me because that is a really useful guide for my behavior and most real big achievements i would wager in society have been created because people move towards something that was bigger than them and that was unrelated to their thoughts and unrelated to their fears and i think thoughts are actually overrated and maybe even the risk registers in the failure, this debate are maybe over related, but uh, maybe the value logs should become more important because our behavior is not that much driven by thoughts, so, for example, when we're under stress and we're getting frightened by maybe you know like a, a car coming up us, we're getting frightened well before our thought machine can. Can even kick in. So it's not really that we have to have our thoughts aligned and we all have to think the right thing to be in the right mindset to do stuff that we care about. But we can absolutely do stuff that is about what's motivating us, what drives us. And so maybe it's most important when we're talking about failure management to talk about um, what is a motivating, what is an engaging, what is a compelling vision for the organization that we can move towards. And under that umbrella, we can maybe accept, Matt, because your word of accepting and accepting that I cannot control that I'm going to feel bad when things go badly. But I can remind myself that I'm doing it in in the interest of something that I find deeply valuable, finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Saving a lot of lives. That is you know in in the in, in the in the world of of mindfulness you could be influenced by you know the thought that i'm you know i'm afraid or you could be influenced by the value that you have you could have the thought dominating you but you can literally just shift your attention and say actually the thought is here but what's important to me right now it's really important that we find a vaccine we accept all sorts of shameful fearful emotions because we're really careful for finding a vaccine what's the cost uh, that uh, we're willing to accept
3: yeah i agree i think there's also an element of ego in this as well in that you know you take your last example you know that the the value of 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 saving lives through you know trying to Mm -hmm. find a vaccine for example um if we were to take it as i must find the vaccine Mm -hmm you only have a one in however many chance of finding that. But if it's that we're going to be part, we're going to play a part in an endeavor that will find a vaccine. So we will all try and find different, different versions of the truth. That's really valuable. And I think that's where, um, that's, that's where if we, if we can remove ourselves and our ego from, being involved in success or failure and focus much more on the values and our own behaviors, we we, we stand a much better chance. Um one of the things I love about the the, the Sandler training, uh, sales training, is that you you don't look at um, you know, most salespeople, it's it's always about hitting targets. It's about, you know, and and that's about the numbers. You know, so what 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 targets do you mean? But then if you break those down and look at it, the success really doesn't happen by closing the deals. It happens right at the start by having the right beliefs uh, and the right behaviours. So the right beliefs about your value and the value that you can bring to the conversation conversation. But also what behaviours are you going to adopt every day? So that might mean, are you going to make 10 sales calls every day? Are you going to try and book, you know, five meetings a week? If you're looking at those behaviours and those sorts of outcomes... You're not looking at closing the deals because they'll come because you know you're adopting the right behaviours together, and so it's knowing that you've got to, you've got to accept failure as a part of the path of success. Mm-hmm. So you don't get put off by the fact that you make a phone call and people don't pick up, or you can't get hold of people, or they're not interested, or you're not the right fit. Well, that matters. What matters mm-hmm. is you're putting yourself out there and you're making those calls, and I and I think that honestly the the, the sales people that I know that do you know that, that take sales seriously are probably some of the most resilient people out there because they have to take rejection time and time again and they just keep going. Mm. And it's not about the personal side of things. They know that they can help people, that they know that they have a good product, they know that they have something to offer the world. And it's just about finding that right fit and I think that's a real you know really interesting thing to see. Particularly in business when, you know, sales can be sort of looked at as a, a particularly, isn't always looked at as the best um professional, you know, part of the commercial team to go into. Um, I think we all sort of look at it as the old used car salesman model. That's what a sales guy is. And of course, they're not like that. Um And it, I think that's a really interesting kind of mind shift.
2: Mm, there's... So this is interesting. There's a couple of things that are – a couple of you know, key points that are starting to move forward. One is in relation to purpose. One is in relation to resilience. The one I'd like to bring up is accountability, mm-hmm. which kind of swings a little bit against this. Yeah. Uh, I was having a conversation with a leader only, what, one, two weeks ago in relation to how do I as a leader deal with failure when I'm not the person who has failed? I have a person who reports into me. I've given them the trust, the direction, the guidance, the resources, and it's gone wrong. No one's looking at the person. Everyone's looking at me, the leader. Like it's my neck on the line. How much responsibility should I take professionally? How much responsibility should I take personally? And how do I actually reconcile that? Because, you know, I wasn't the person who was in the room doing the thing and it's all, it's, it's failed However, now it's 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 my problem, yeah. and and yeah. how do we actually reconcile that or turn that into a positive? Now, going back a little bit, one of the things that I heard, I think Yotay you said, is in relation to making failure fun. Uh, you triggered a memory. Good couple of years ago, I was doing some work with a television uh, production company in South America. And they were looking to do exactly this. They had a lot of failures, but they wanted to make it enjoyable. And they basically applied gamification principles to failure. They said, okay, you know, yeah. so, you know, team A, team B, team C, you know, tell the story, what's the learning, make sure it's in the right, you know, there, there were definitely definitions around it what a failure right. looked like mm-hmm. that was acceptable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they played it off against each other and they turned it into stories and the stories went around the organization like wildfire because everyone knows that Adams production went you know went pear-shaped but here's the nuts and bolts of how it happened and why it happened and what we learned it's because originally before that they were trying to put all this information into a SharePoint no one's going to go into the intranet and read why my thing failed like everyone's busy but the stories run around so there was a degree of creative license in relation to the narrative, and that's what they were gamifying. However, they needed to be validated by a senior leader who understood the project and by an unrelated senior leader who could verify its impact on the P&L, on the budget, on, on whatever aspect of the business it had a direct effect on. But it had to have key learnings. Within the story within the narrative that would then roll through the organization and they use that to positively reinforce the culture. Mm-hmm. people were remunerated in in a way that wasn't necessarily financial so, you know Adams won you know the 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 best failure story of the month and this became a little bit of a badge of honor because they the senior leader like the the CEO the chief executive got up and said, failure is a part of this so don't lean away from it because we're trying to produce ambitious product. Um, we're not going to always get it right, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't always try that a little bit harder. So there was a way that they reconciled this accountability through almost commoditizing failure and turning it into an asset unto itself, as opposed to this hot potato no one wants to touch. Your
0: turn. I see. I see. Thank you. I think that's a fascinating story, and that brings – Something to me that I hadn't seen before. When we want to fail fabulously, we need to have our eyes on the prize at two different levels. We need to deal with failures and digest them and turn them into learning opportunities as each instance of a failure happens. But we also need to see our whole organizational culture as an opportunity for having our eyes open and looking at what is there and succeeding at being authentic and real, or we could ignore and shy away from difficult conversations that are not even necessarily related to specific instances of failure. Did you see where I'm going? But mm-hmm. actually, the opportunity to manage failure better is even, it, it is a, a multi-level endeavor of if I want to take the culture of my organization and turn it into a learning organization where failure is part and parcel of a learning culture, where we are questioning the assumptions that got us to where we're getting from, right, double loop learning. We have a learning machine organization. We must use the opportunity where there's a difficult conversation, where somebody needs to be brought to accountability that might have, you know, been out of the parameters of innovation, creation, Um, maybe he was, they were taking the mickey a little bit, right? In terms of, if you, you get the sense that an honest conversation needs to be had, it's an opportunity to almost shift the whole overall soup of the culture of the organization towards not shying away from failure. Because it's absolutely right, you as the leader could be seen to then be blameworthy for not addressing it sooner. I want to bring the word compassion in here Mm -hmm. because the only way I see that you can turn this failure into a learning opportunity is to bring compassionate action into it. Right. And so um, the way we bring compassion into organization is first of all, by slowing down and not being, not being too fast. Right. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: where did I read this? I read this the other day that, um, the Chinese symbol for busyness is two words. It's killing and it's heart. So it kills the heart. So when you're too busy, you kill the heart of yourself or whatever. Have you heard
2: that? Well, actually, I reminds me that. of a, it's a reminder of a saying of that busyness is a byproduct of misplaced priorities.
0: Ooh, interesting. Because yeah. dealing with a story where somebody has caused a problem, right? that needs to they will need to be taken to accountability. What's that? How do you say this in English? Um, is an opportunity for you to be compassionate, but also have action, right? So if you're saying uh, compassion is the opposite of indifference, right? So I care, I don't care. I don't give a damn, right? But I could avoid, or I could, you know, we're talking two by two, right? I could avoid talking, or I could address things. You You definitely want to be, a compassionate rather than an indifferent guy. But, you, but compassion doesn't mean avoiding addressing difficult topics. That's what I'm, That's my point here. That yeah. compassion actually is an action. And actually the Dalai Lama said uh, compassion is effectively pro-social behavior. So pro-social behavior means you care about somebody, but that doesn't mean you avoid talking when somebody is accountable. And that, yeah. in that sense, you show... That you care and that you are not afraid of talking about any level of difficulty, even if it is your failure to notice when maybe somebody should have been helped or been trained or maybe aligned with a corporate culture a bit sooner. Adam.
2: Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is that it's still having compassion with accountability. Mm-hmm. And what I'm then throwing on the top is then depoliticizing the failure because mm-hmm. if we depoliticize it problems. suddenly mm-hmm. we have yeah. personal you know, we we have we now have a wedge in the middle of it that allows failure to exist where if it because if it's politically charged all the power play dynamics all of the self interest all of the blaming other people all of the protecting of resources everything's going to lunge forward and then it's going to become what failure looks like in the overwhelming majority of organizations, organizations which is a screaming match and a blame game and someone's got to lose their head and never get a promotion or, you know, get put onto special projects, and never see the light of day again or whatever it happens to be. There's, there's this element of, yeah, I like it. Compassion, accountability, and the deep de-politici- the deep politicization of failure of what failure looks like. And then turning it into something where, Nothing but good can come out of it because it's being led with a compassion mm-hmm. compassionate lens on a human on a, on a human kind of uh through human lens. The accountability has a clear understanding of the structure that we're not going into the blame game, and the depolitic the the you know not making it mm-hmm. political. Makes, starts to move towards you know, your your prior comments in other sessions about psychological safety. if it's a safe space, then i don't have to put up all these political barriers to try to protect what what this might mean to me
0: and yeah. the way I, I see this play out uh, forgive me i 'm just jumping very quickly in, in the is concretely what depoliticizing means uh, separating the person from the problem it means talking about the problem in neutral terms rather than addressing people in the second person and saying this is what you did it's very practical it's very easy to depoliticize things by 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 talking about the issue not as an issue of you know person x has um but by by talking about it as if it is separate from the individual that may or may not have caused it so there's a very easy way of practically uh, you know approaching depoliticizing by talking about this as if the person either hadn't joined or hadn't left the organisation because you actually want to learn from it anyway, independent of the person. You need to deal with the person separately anyway. Uh, Matt.
3: And, and there's some real um, you know, business benefits from, from taking this approach. If you look at any of the case studies that, that are written about organisational failures, okay. you tend to see, I mean, I think that the, probably the poster child of this is the story of the of the, the Ford uh, US car where they put the fuel tank in the, in, the, in the rear of the car and after the car was on the road for a little while, they realised that there was an abnormally high number of uh, fatalities because when people drove into the back of that car, the fuel tank would rupture and the car would set on fire. Uh, rather than addressing that compassionately and saying, hey, we've got to look after these people, the organisation or, or an, an element of the organisation took the political view and decided that they would um, look at the, shall we say, the costs of replacing those cars and, and, and fixing the problem versus the cost of, you know, hushing it up. They didn't do the recall, and the amount of reputational damage was massive. You have the same in sort of all you, sort of situation in 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 airlines. If um, there was a great example with uh, with United Airlines where they broke somebody's guitar. Um, wiped a billion dollars off the uh, the stock price overnight, um, and uh, basically what happened was this, this: this this rock band had their guitars; they weren't allowed to take them on with them. They broke them uh, as they were being put on there. But rather than apologising and being good to the people, so it wasn't their fault. They couldn't; they didn't manage to get any good. They wrote a, a, one of the first sort of. Viral YouTube videos that went everywhere. A song called United Breaks Guitars, if anybody wants to go. and think it's still a great country song. Um, and, you know, that absolutely destroyed the, the airline's reputation for ages. Now, if you contrast that, and that's just breaking somebody's guitar, with the, the situation of a BMI plane, which was, uh, I think it was British Midlands International. Um, it's a now defunct and disappeared airline, you know, British airline. They had a plane go down uh, in the UK. And, uh, you know, thankfully, nobody was hurt during the crash. Um, But this turned into a massive success for them because they thought ahead. They'd been through that, um, you know, that that worst case scenario. They planned for the worst, um, the project pre-mortem, if you will. And they'd hooked up with Marks and Spencers such that if anybody, if they ever had a plane go down in the UK. They had... um, they had organised for, you know, Marks and Spencers to bring out both food and clothing for anybody that was impacted while they were being looked after. Mm-hmm. So this was the middle of winter, and everybody could have been absolutely frozen, but the local Marks and Spencer stores were were essentially sort of rushed there, and they had all of the coats, all of the you know warm jumpers. So people were really, really well looked after while you know the while you know while everything was being sorted out, and. It just, you know, became a massive PR coup for the organisation, and I think that's where you can start seeing by being compassionate and having a plan in place to look after people and accept the fact that you're going to address the problem and you're going to, you know, action it quickly, compassionately. You can make a huge difference to, um, you know, the sh- how you know what that narrative is around the organisation. This brand success is now all about. The stories that people tell about you—that mm-hmm. um, that sort of uh, approach is absolutely vital for you know organizations as they move forward to be able to say, hey, you know, we've got your back and we're thinking about you. And if our plane goes down, it's not just that we're going to make sure you know, make try and keep you safe. We're going to try and make sure that you that you're kept warm and that you're fed. And hey, you can even keep the coats that we gave you, even if you've got your luggage back at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, because what's ultimately happening there is that it's a great example of applying compassion in scenario planning at a failure point.
3: Mm.
2: Like it's 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 a brilliant example. That's just multiple disciplines coming in onto a particular point, which is a, indeed a failure point. But go- not looking at it, going, know, oh, how can we turn this into a good news story?" But to the point, putting accountability at the centre, still making it account, uh, still making it compassionate about the people and the job that we're trying to do and the circumstances that we're trying to address, but not making it political and just just managing it through very nicely. But you need the foresight. And that's what I think this is all about in relation to failing fabulously, just making sure that we have a good understanding of all the optionality that we as leaders, as team members have to us, that when failure hits, which it inevitably will, what are the things we can do there is always another way of how we can actually work our way through these particular things and having some of that foresight and then de-risking it like you know whether it's cutting a deal with you know, a, a a national food and clothing retailer or whether it's you know anything really just you know look at the circumstances of what is the failure you did what is the failure you're trying to address and then making sure that at least if you've thought what we can do should this happen, the actions are going to be much quicker. So many organizations, when something hits the fan, they'll sit down and be like, right, this has happened. Why did it happen? Who's responsible? Meanwhile, the clock's ticking. There's no compassion. Everyone's in damage control. The people who are running around being compassionate usually aren't the people in charge. They're the people who are on the ground going, oh my goodness, a plane's gone down and they run towards it. And these people aren't usually staff, they're just people because they have a compassion, compassion-led compassion interest into making sure people are okay.
0: You know, we can actually structurally, um, we, we as advisors and uh, leaders of groups and organisations can actually plan for creating the infrastructure for people to, um, you know, notice problems as they happen, um, you know, Pinpoint them and neutralize them. So, in in, in, in behavior therapy, uh, 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 behavior therapy, we always talk about, you know, noticing problems, naming it, so that we actually know what what we're dealing with, and then neutralizing it, normally by making it acceptable, and then that that gets through it. But in the preparation for the inevitable difficulty that is going to be part of innovation and operating in the twenty first century post. Hopefully, pandemic. Um, we can do two things that um, that I'm that came to me just now because of um, the the high reliability uh, organizational mindfulness literature that uh, Carl Wake has spearheaded. He basically talked about high reliability organizations as organizations where we systematically plan for failure, and we plan for failure by paying attention to day to day differences, by never accepting things the way they are by not taking anything for granted by refusing to simplify problems um, by looking for difficulty proactively right but then the other side of a high reliability organization is the responding to failure and that has two parts one is we can step in in, from a, a resourcing perspective, in a redu- resource redundancy perspective, that means if somebody goes down, somebody else is trained in advance to pick up the button. When failure happens, you know, we all know enough about the, the different parts of the game or the puzzle so that when there's a failure in one aspect of the, of the operation, we can pick up on that. That means that requires planning, that requires Actually, people not being siloed, but people actually knowing enough about the organization or the project as a whole to be able to step in when the proverbial stuff hits the fan. And the other thing that leaders can grapple with before problems happen is organizations that function reliably in the the face of failure have decision-making processes where the person that's closest to the actual problem automatically has the power to make decisions. So the decision-making process is trained to be decentralized. And that's something that leaders can tackle before problems happen. So empower people to make decisions more close to, to, to the, the bone, as it were, is a way to then recover from difficulty.
2: Mm. It also, empower, by empowering people who are closer to the failure point, Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Yeah, it, it's it, you're not only giving people autonomy, you're giving them the accountability mm-hmm. of it succeeding as well. That there's the other side of the coin. And when you when the failure doesn't mm-hmm. come and you actually succeed, you still need to take time to acknowledge that we were ready for the worst case scenario, we're ready for the failure point. This is what failure looks like. Only internally, you don't need to you know, sing it to the street, but just you know, make sure this is a muscle of this is how we do things here. Mm-hmm. Failure is a part of the game. We are ready for failure. It is not the end of the organization, nor is it the end of the career. Mm-hmm. But doing it in a way, obviously, that it's contained, it's managed. I don't mean everyone go crazy and just kind of do cool stuff and you know, and nothing works. It still definitely needs to be controlled. However, that. Decentralization of of it's purpose authority. almost it's authority yeah. actually
0: I think yeah, yeah. because uh, I think that's really important isn't it and I'm just thinking about the organizations that I've worked with um, the tendency in hierarchical organizations is to give people responsibility for specific you know tasks jobs um, uh, projects. But to not necessarily give them the authority to make decisions, routine decisions, let alone strategic decisions. But if during the day to day operation, we can almost flex our muscle to give people authority to make more and more important decisions, then we're effectively training people to become empowered to, with accountability, right? And authority, make decisions during failure scenarios, doing problems. And I think that is a little bit about, you know, decentralizing, de, uh, deregulating, um, empowering the shop floor before problems come up. Yeah. And that's also a culture change, I think, that we need in organizations.
2: And what enables that to happen is risk mitigation mm-hmm. because people need to feel safe. If you're going to start handing out authority... People mm-hmm. need to know that there's a structure behind them to set them up for success, or yes. else they just see it as a passing the buck of something that was doomed, and then they quit in seat, check out, and they just don't want anything to do with it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I go back to Matt's uh, pre-mortem. If we were to institutionalize pre-mortems at the beginning of every project, yeah. we're already starting to, to, to dip our toes into what are the decisions, what are the, the, the authority levels that we need to maybe shift? When? Problems occur when problems, when failures happen. Sorry, Matt.
3: I was just going to say, I think that's, that's that's exactly where I was going as well. I think you know, I've been in
0: mm-hmm.
3: been in situations where you know people are giving the accountability and the responsibility for things, but they're not necessarily given the authority. Mm-hmm. And if you can't if you can't influence, you know, if you're having to rely on, shall we say, weak influence to make things happen, especially if they're a little bit unpalatable, somewhere, you know, for changes that you're looking to make. That can be a particularly difficult place to be in um you can be accountable and responsible for for something but if it but if you're not got the authority to push things through that can then you know i think that then leads to huge you know areas of um organizational stress Yeah. Um, and in and in itself is a source of failure um but an organization yeah, it's managerial failure then.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, managerial yeah. player, absolutely. I, th- I think mm-hmm. yeah, I, ahead, I think the ahead. things I'm, I'm starting to take away is mm-hmm. particularly this latest point in relation to the application of authority because in so many organizations and so many innovations and in so many failures, there is, you know, who is accountable and who has the authority are quite often different and that's what makes it political mm-hmm. because everyone wants to get to the point of authority where they can – you know, outsource accountability. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was the chief executive of this company under this, but it was actually, you know, the research and development part, the department's going to lose their head because I'm running the company. They're the one burning the innovation. And it's that we need to find a way to reconcile this and break this political dynamic down. And I think the purpose, the application of purpose, the application of compassion and using those two points to proactively depoliticize this mm-hmm. and go look this is a company activity, this is an enterprise-wide activity, this is an Adam head of R and D activity. And we we, you know, we we spread the the political risk across the organization because we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And you need a culture to, to to foster that. And that goes back to the personal stories of the leadership. I've been at the head of a car crash. This is what it looked like. This is what we learned. This is acceptable. That gamification element also plays a part into this as well because we can set up the structure, but if the culture isn't supporting the structure, then we're just going to end back up to a blame game.
0: And concretely, um, I'm 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 sniggering a little bit because I want to uh, have the tagline for one of the big takeaways uh, that, Emerging for me here is um, we need to make failure great again. You know, we need to Oof. do that, and we need to make failure great again by yeah. talking about failure, by celebrating, it, so by proactively. Sorry, Matt.
3: Because we're tired of so much winning
0: <laughs> <laughs> right in this day and age, um, and we can only make it cool and great by being obsessed with. Um, You know, finding some values, finding some gold nugget in something that is difficult, something that is challenging, something that is causing confusion. That's how we're making it palatable, acceptable and manageable.
3: Very much so. I mean, I have to say that I, I, you know, if I take my key takeaway, actually, it comes down to the little four by four that you sketched out earlier, you know, where you've got this sort of the the dimension of um, of compassion and um shall we say that, uh, uh politics on one side and on the other you've got on the other dimension you've got inaction versus action and i think if you're looking to be in a in that quadrant where you're you're taking action and you're in and, and it's compassionate action that for me is probably the the key thing and that's compassionate action for the organization for yourself in a whole whole sense of things and, and that really then helps move move forward because if we look at failure as a stepping stone to success, you've got to, you've got to be compassionate about each of those failures that get you there. Otherwise you'll never get there because you'll beat yourself up before you ever do, whether that's, uh, you know, on a, on a solo or as an organisation. And um, for me, that, that sort of sense of compassion is it's a, huge, it's a huge part
2: of this. Mm, absolutely. I like it. The strategy behind failing fabulously. And we have many other podcasts and videos and there will obviously be more to come because we are not finished by a long shot.
0: We haven't finished filming, have we? Not Not
2: yet. (laughs) We haven't started.
1: (laughs) Trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives, and organisations across the globe. Dr. Jutta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr. Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenters' work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast.